you know, we just sang about heaven and uh, the glories of it and everything, how wonderful, and I have to talk about something so earthly and down here where it's all messy. It did bring to mind, it did, did bring to mind that, uh, that little poem you've heard before, uh, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with those we know, that's another story. Last week, I began to introduce four characters in a church drama. Four characters in a church drama. Uh, churches can get themselves in all kinds of dramas, but I have in mind in that title one, uh, one particular kind, uh, unlike, uh, unlike other church dramas that, that uh, churches can get into. That many years ago now, a family was with us in our church here for a few short months, and so long ago, I can, I can scarcely remember their names or place their face at all. It's a long time ago, so don't, don't worry yourself about it. Don't think, if you've been here like 20, 25 years, don't, don't try to think, now who was that, who was that? Because you're not going to think of it. I can't, I can't think of it myself. But they, the mom and dad of this family, they put me on notice early on. I mean, right, right at the beginning, they said to me, that, and I think they must have had... Uh, what people call bad church experiences, you know, they had bad church experiences, they, because they put it to me plainly, they kind of, I remember them kind of leaning forward and, and furrowing brows and saying, they said, you don't do church drama here, do you? <laughs> because we don't do church drama. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, no, no, of course not. We, you know, the Bible, well, that's not funny. I mean, I, I'm sure I said, I, I'm sure I, I, I softened that a little bit, and I said, you know, like something like, you know, the, the Bible commands us just straight out. It commands churches, all churches, all Christians, forgive one another and uh, forbear with one another, which means put up with, you know, put up with one another and things like that. And I wouldn't say that our church is somehow above the need for those kinds of admonitions or, or commands, but... But you know we're we're a gaggle of uh, recovering sinners after all, just like uh, like all churches. But we're not a. I'm sure I said something like that. But but we're not a church that has been or is now oh beset by a lot of infighting and and uh, party spirit and controversy and that like like some churches are. I, I know. And they said uh, whatever I said something like that, and they said good. Because we don't do church drama, <laughs> and you know, and, and older—that's a long time ago. And a sadder but wiser pastor uh, would have, like I am now, would have immediately thought, "Oh, they're bringing the church drama with them. <laughs> they're going to bring it with them." And and I, I wonder if. Uh, if someone were to say that to me now, you know, right at the beginning, you know, you don't do church drama here. I, I, I would wonder if they ever realized, or would ever realize, how controversy or that sort of drama seems to be following them from church to church to church. Um, they were right about one thing, though that. The kind of church drama that they were seeking to escape 
It's a miserable and unedifying, unhelpful uh, thing to be avoided, if at all possible. It is not indicative of anything right or good or healthy going on. It's, uh, it's something that to deal with and move past it. But I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about a particular kind of church drama, you know, like four characters in a church drama, that um, is not an ugly church fight, uh, an aberration of what church life should be, but really something that naturally and inevitably arises if a church is what it ought to be. If a church is doing what it should be doing. If, it's, if a church is what it should be, which is a kind of a family, right? The family of God, the household of faith. Uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. who are yeah, A fellowship of people who are being saved. A fellowship. Faith, Bible, fellowship. It's, it's people who are actually involved in one another's lives. Uh, who care, people who care for one another, love one another. And that, that's why I began this, this kind of short series of sermons under the title, How to Love with Differences of Conviction and Convention in the Church. Not just how to live with, because that's what you expect, how to live with. But no, how to love with those differences. And what we're talking about are differences of conviction and uh, convention or faith and practice uh, about on, on topics or issues about which Christians in good faith with equal respect for the authority of the Scriptures would come to different practices or different convictions. Not just, as I said last week, Christian morality isn't just up for grabs. It's not a matter of personal preference. But sometimes, sometimes there we will apply the principles, commands, prohibitions, principles differently. In the, in the New Testament era, the big issue, it seems to me, when we read the New Testament, the big issue was eating meat that came from animals that had been sacrificed to idols or may have been sacrificed to idols. Um, that's one of the, I think that's the main issue in the New Testament. The, the, other, the other issue that seems a little bit lesser, but it's still there, is, is uh, observing Jewish holy days like the Sabbath. You know, do, do you continue, now that you become a Christian, you know, this Christian of Jewish background, do you continue to observe the Sabbath? Do you do what your family has done forever, you know, in observing the Sabbath uh, or, or the other feast days? Um, so in both of these cases, some Christians did and some didn't. Some, some uh, had knowledge. In Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 there. And I, I've, you've got a, uh, in the bulletin, I put, I put those two chapters in, in there so you can look at verses that, I, that I'll refer to. Um, some could eat meat that came from a, uh, 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 they knew the animal had been sacrificed to an idol or may have been. They did it with a clean conscience. They thought, no, this is not, Baal doesn't own this, this, this is from God. I give thanks for it and I eat it. It's comes from God. But some, some said, no, 
can't do it, can't do it. I know eating meat is not the same as going to a pagan temple and worshiping, bowing the knee to Baal, but even that, I can't do it. Or, or observing uh, days, holy days, can't do it. That, but that would be, that's back then, you know, as I said last week, meat, meeting meat, sacrifice to an idol, hardly ever comes up for us, right? Hardly ever comes up. So there, in our time, there are other things, other things that fit that same category. Um, one Christian will have freedom before the Lord to drink a beer or have a glass of wine. Uh, so, and another believer said, no, no. Couldn't do that. Couldn't do that with a clean conscience before God. One of my, one of my chemo nurses, I told you, has a big, big Jesus uh, tattoo on her arm. Jesus. Covers her whole bicep she's proud of it and listen for her that tattoo is a is is really a it's a sign of her devotion to the lord right it's a jesus tattoo and there are other christians for whom getting a tattoo of any kind whether it said jesus or mom or no regrets you know it's it's no it's defacing the the body as god gave it it's following the example of the pagan, the pagan cultures now and in the past. And so it's, it's anything. It's, it's a thousand things. A thousand things. Where any issue at all about which Christians in good faith, as I say, are not cheating. They really, in good faith, read the scriptures and they have equal authority for the, equal respect for the authority of the scriptures. They come to different convictions about some of these things, different practices, and how do you? And and it's the responsibility of the body of Christ to to love each other with those differences. In Romans fourteen, Romans fourteen, one of the new, two main New Testament chapters. There's a few other passages I know, but but that address these differences. The other the other main one being First Corinthians eight, I think. But Romans fourteen begins this way: As for the one who is weak in faith. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And the point is that we're to welcome the, who I've called here, one of the four characters, the genuinely weaker believer. Welcome him. Even though, listen, that we're to welcome this person, even though there may be a temptation to quarreling, right? Don't quarrel. He warns us, don't quarrel. So there might be a temptation to quarrel, he says, don't quarrel, but you've got to welcome them just the same. Take them in. Take them in. Uh, later, he says, don't judge each other. So there might be a temptation to judge. He says, don't judge. But even though there could be judging comes out of it, welcome him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, there might be a temptation or a, 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 to cause this genuinely weaker brother to stumble. He could stumble, you know, the, the, the stronger brothers, they could, by their example or their, their words, they could cause this person to stumble. Even though that's the case, we're still to welcome them and incorporate, embrace this difference. Do you see what I mean? So in other words, it's doing what a church, if you have this sort of thing, it's because your church is doing it right. You know, in other words, we're not to communicate in any way. Oh, there's the weaker brother. He can't get past the idea that it's a sin to 
eat meat that may have been come from that may have come from an animal sacrificed to an idol. Or it's a sin to continue to observe Jewish holy days now that you're a Christian. It's an abandonment of faith. And we're not to say to that person, oh, well, you need to go to the... There's, this is not the right church for you. you. You need to go to a church where everybody agrees with you. That, 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 you need to go to that church. They're not, uh, you know... We're not the tattoo church. There's a tattoo church down... There's a tattoo church in West Knoxville. Go to the t- tattoo church. You, you won't fit in here. Oh, you, you have beer in the fridge? Well, th- th- this is First Teetotaler Church. We love you and the Lord and everything, but you'd be, I think you'd fit in better with those you know, craft beer drinking Calvinists. It, no. We are... That, that's not how we're to do church, right? You know, divide, you know, get everybody so where everybody have churches where everybody has the same convictions about all these things about which the scripture, you know, is at least capable of different, you know, coming to different convictions, different ideas about. Find a church where everybody agrees with you, and that's where you belong. No, we're to accept the one who is diff- doing it differently in this detail or that, and in this case, the genuinely weaker brother. So when we find ourselves having to deal with, think through how to live with, how to love with these differences, it's not an indication of something gone wrong. It's an indication of something going right. It, it, it indicates a recognition that this life we've been called to in Christ while at its core being a private and personal relationship with the Lord, one-on-one, vertical with the Lord, there is also a necessary communal and corporate dimension to it, horizontal, a sense in which we are doing this together. Right? If you don't, if you don't have this vertical, personal relationship with God through faith in Christ, you don't have anything, do you? But so, but it's not only this. It's also this. Something we're doing together. I was thinking about this just when we were taking the Lord's Supper. You know, you the personal aspect. You take the bread and the cup. Me. It's me, Lord. The one who takes the bread and puts it into his body. The one who takes the contents of the cup puts it into his body. I'm dependent on you. Christ died for me, the vertical aspect. But you notice, we all serve each other, right? Even me, even the fellows who, who distribute the elements, nobody takes it for themselves. We, all, we serve each other in that. And so it's, it's that interplay, that interface between the we're living this life together and this personal relationship with the Lord. It's, a, uh, it's the way it is, and we have to learn to love with, these, with the differences that creates. So, the four characters in that, per- in that particular kind of church drama, which I say, there's nothing wrong with it, something right about it. The four characters are these, and you're going to find yourself being one of these characters uh, at playing this role and any of the issue, you're not going to be the same one every time, but you're going to be one of them. 
There's the genuinely weaker brother or genuinely weaker Christian or believer. Genuinely weaker, though professing weaker Christian, the abstaining mature Christian, and the participating mature Christian. One of those... You, you're not going to know what those are yet, but we, you know, we started uh, last week with the genuinely weaker. We're going to do the professing weaker brother today, or the professing mature, professing weaker Christian. But you're going to be one of those: genuinely weaker, professing weaker, abstaining mature, participating mature. Last week we started with a genuinely weaker believer, and that's where we ought to start because the. And when you read these passages. The main concern of the apostle is for that person, the genuinely weaker believer. That's his main concern. Don't make that person stumble. Don't hurt that person. And who is this? Who is this genuinely weaker believer? We won't, I won't kind of re-preach. What if you want to look, hear it more in depth at the sermons online. But, just to review, because you need to know this, he's weak, and you see this, Romans 14, you see it in 1 Corinthians 8, he's weak in two ways. One, he's weak, he kind of has a weakness of faith in this sense, that his sense of right and wrong is not fully informed by the Scriptures, but it's part from the Scriptures, and partly from, oh, the way he was raised, and partly from his own experiences, like before he was a believer and partly from the opinions of others, like the last person he talked to. You know, it's just, a, it's not really informed by the Scriptures, but it has a lot of sources, his sense of right and wrong. And secondly, and really more significantly, his weakness, he's weak in this way, and it's really far more significant. It's a weakness of conscience so that this genuinely weaker believer is susceptible to being temporarily emboldened to do that which his conscience will later condemn. Uh, and that's what you don't that's what we guard against is somehow encouraging this genuinely weaker believer to do something saying it's okay go ahead and do it have a beer it's not a sin nobody's going to get drunk here have a beer have, come on have you know it's fine it's fine and then he's later he's going to condemn himself. He's going to say, that wasn't right. I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against God. I need to seek his forgiveness. How could I do that? He condemns himself for it. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't. You should shudder to think that you... And guess what? It is a sin for him because, it's, because the Scripture says... Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you, if you think it's a sin for you, don't do it. It is for you. So how do we, and I just finished my thought, we should shudder to think that we would be the cause of someone else sinning. So how do we love that genuinely weaker believer. And this is where we ended up last week. We love him in two ways. By, one, by protecting him or her from sinning. We protect them. And secondly, we teach them 
him or her, so that he will no longer be weak. There's no reason why that position, that genuinely weaker brother, there's no reason why that should be anything other than a temporary condition. It is not a permanent lifestyle choice for any believer. I'm a genuinely weaker believer and I always will be. No. You don't need to be weak. You need to, now, you, you, don't need to be, you need to become one of these other people that we'll talk about when we finish this up next week. Abstaining mature believer or participating mature believer, doesn't matter which one, but you need to be one of those mature believers. It's not a permanent lifestyle choice. But that's one of the, that's one of the uh, characters that shows up. The genuinely weaker believer, Paul says, watch out for that person. You know, watch out for their benefit. Watch out for their welfare. Protect them and teach them. The, the next character is what I call the professing weaker believer. He thinks of himself as weak because he shares the opinion, he, he agrees with the overscrupulous conscience of the genuinely weaker believer. In the Romans 14 example, for just in the Romans 14 example, he would share the weaker brother's opinion that eating meat from an animal that had been sacrificed to an idol is definitely a sin against God. He agrees with that. He, it's a violation of the second commandment against idolatry. No, can't do it. Applied to some of the other issues we brought up, the genuinely weaker, weaker believer uh, could not enjoy a fermented beverage without his conscience condemning him, either now or later. And the professing weaker believer would agree with that, said, I couldn't do it either. No, I couldn't do it. I'm weak like you are. I couldn't do it. Uh, let's say the genuinely weaker believer has no freedom before the Lord, just anything, uh, to uh, dress casually for corporate worship, say. Uh, the, whatever the issue. The professing weaker believer said, me too, me too. I, got, I can't do it, I can't do it. So he thinks of himself as weak. He might even say, I'm weak. I'm the weaker believer here, but they're using the Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 terminology. He, he professes himself to be weak because his conscience is offended when he sees or learns about other Christians doing things that he disapproves of. He reasons, he may, even, he may even describe himself when he learns about or sees some other Christian doing something that he doesn't approve of. He may have even think of himself as having stumbled at that. He'll say, I really disagree with that behavior. It kind of hurts my feelings to think about that other person doing that. I thought more of them than that. My conscience wouldn't allow it. I'm surprised his conscience allows him to do that. And therefore, I've been made to stumble. But as we saw last week, that's not what stumbling is. A genuinely weaker believer has stumbled when he is temporarily emboldened to do that which his conscience will later condemn so a believer, a believer stumbles when he sins against his own conscience. In, in fairness, in other words, it's not just disapproving of 
what someone else is doing. In fairness, I can see how, how uh, some would think that stumbling is, is simply being offended or grieved or upset. I can see how they might see it in, in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. If you neglect the context, if you take certain phrases in isolation, uh, Romans 14, 15, for example, you've got it in front of you, it says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. It says that. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. So someone might reason, I've been grieved by what you approve. Therefore, you are not walking in love. Therefore, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Because I don't agree with it. 1 Corinthians 8, 12, 13 says this way, Thus, sinning against your brothers, brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So someone might kind of take that out of context and say, all that is necessary for me to have stumbled is for someone else to wound my conscience. You do something that my conscience wouldn't allow me to do, therefore I've stumbled. But when you take the whole teaching of Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, you see that no, it's not just disapproving of what someone else is doing. It's being emboldened against your own conscience to do it. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10. Take care lest that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat? To eat food offered to idols. That's the stumbling. Romans 14, 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's the genuinely weaker believer. He's susceptible to that, to sinning against his own conscience. But the professing weaker believer, he professes to be weak, he thinks of himself as weak, but in actuality, he is not weak at all. He's strong. He is not susceptible at all to being temporarily emboldened by someone else's example to do that which would violate his own conscience. He, he may think of himself as having stumbled because he saw a fellow believer that he used to respect walking out of the liquor store with a long brown bag he said, oh, I, I, oh, my goodness, I saw a believer, I respected him, and yet he's walked. He's caused me to, he may, he's caused me to stumble. I, I can't approve of that. But the reality is, the professing weaker believer, wild horses could not drag him into a liquor store. <laughs> he is nowhere close to being emboldened against his conscience to violate it. The, the Pharisees were highly offended when Jesus' disciples were plucking heads of grain, remember this? And eating them on the Sabbath. Why were they so offended at that? Because to their way of thinking, that was harvesting. 
That is harvesting on the Sabbath, and we're not to do that or any other kind of work on the Sabbath. We're not to, that's a sin against God. They didn't care if it was to get in the John Deere tractor and, you know, harvesting the field or just plug. It doesn't matter how much. It's still harvesting. It's wrong. And I know that's not in the context of the church. But they were not susceptible to joining, by the example of Jesus and the disciples, they weren't susceptible to sinning against their own conscience and doing that thing that their conscience would condemn. No. Far from being weak, the professing weaker believer is so strong in his conscience that he thinks that not only his, should his conscience be his own guide, his conscience should be everybody's guide. He's strong. Now, he has a susceptibility, but it's not to stumbling. You know what his susceptibility is? It's his susceptibility is, is becoming a let my conscience be your guide busybody. <laughs> His supposed weakness can become a bludgeon with which he controls others. Uh, the late Joe Aldrich, who writes uh, of the professing weaker brother, he, he, this is what he writes. He says, he is not weak in the biblical sense, but he uses his misinterpreted weakness as a weapon to make the circumstances comply with his viewpoint. From a biblical standpoint, he is not weak if he is not susceptible. In spite of this, he uses his alleged weakness to manipulate others. In his 1975 commentary on Romans, a Swedish theologian, Anders Nygren, he writes on this point, it's on Romans 14, he says, Not infrequently it is the weak who is the real tyrant. <laughs> We all, and I, I believe this, we all have to guard against becoming the professing weaker believer. Why is that? Because there's a little bit of Pharisee in everyone. <laughs> there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Because let's face it, we really like it when other people do what we think they should do. <laughs> We really like that. It's very attractive to the flesh. I mean, think of it. You get to be right. You get to control what other people are doing. You get to be seen as more spiritual, seen by others more spiritual, seen by yourself. And if we add to that the temptation, the kind of the bonus of being a victim... Well, it's a powerful temptation. And especially in our own age, right? In our age, the, 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 the generation that we live in, it, it, it seems to me. I, I, is, there, is there anything, is there any term that captures the spirit of our age, the, the generation that we're living in, like the term cry bully? Have you heard that one? Cry bully. <laughs> heard of the cry bully? What a beautiful word. Yeah. Our generation is the one who made up that word, and we needed to because that's a person. That is somebody in our culture, right? The cry bully. It's a character. 
someone who uses his exalted status as victim to intimidate, abuse, manipulate. And it's a cross between crybaby and bully, and it's just perfect. And we have to guard against that tendency in ourselves because our culture, our generation, so rewards and exalts and empowers with special status the victim, and it's very seductive. 1 Corinthians uh, 5, read the apostles. I, I read this. They, they, they've been beaten for teaching about Jesus. You know, they've been beaten for, uh, for proclaiming the gospel publicly. And it says they went away. This is Acts 5.41. It says they went away from the council, I think it says. They went away from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And when I read it, it unnerves me a little bit. And, and you know why? Because I'm afraid that my first impulse, if that were to happen to me, my first impulse would be to wallow in my victimhood. <laughs> oh, I'd probably call a big meeting and tell you all, all about it. Look what they've done to me. Look what they've done to me. Because in our time, victimhood is a, boy, it's a great path to status and power. And my flesh knows it. And that we have to, I think we have, I think everybody has to guard against being the professing weaker brother. Because it can sneak up on, it can sneak up on us. And, and, we're, that, and we're that person before we knew what was happening. I don't want to be that character. You, you don't either. You don't either. But here's the surprising thing. Here's the surprising thing for many. What do we do? What do we do with a professing weaker believer when he shows up? He's to be resisted and corrected. That's surprising. Because our impulse is to submit to him, to kind of let him be the boss for the sake of peace. But that isn't the biblical counsel. And that isn't the example of Jesus and the apostles. Romans 14.3, you have it in front of you. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Don't let it happen. <laughs> let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, what do we say to the professing weaker brother? We say something like this, and using the uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. It isn't important that you eat or don't eat, but it is important that you not pass judgment on your fellow believer as a sinner because he has freedom to do what you don't. Don't we obey Romans 14.3 by correcting the professing believer. And please notice that I, that I said resist and correct and not something like confront and condemn. I didn't say confront and condemn. I, I said resist and correct. Uh, Galatians 6.1 is our model. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
Romans, Romans 14, 16 seems surprising. And it seems surprising that that verse shows up, but there it is. Verse 16, so do not let, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So what do we say to the professing weaker believer who says, your eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol is wrong, and not just for me, for everybody, including you. So you need to stop because it's not right. Don't you have to say something on the order of? No, listen, if you think you should abstain, you should abstain. Don't eat it. You shouldn't eat it. And the way I understand the New Testament here, and this is clear, I shouldn't do anything that would encourage you to violate your own conscience in that matter. You know, that, that's a part of the holy of holies of your walk with the Lord. It isn't my place to challenge it, alter it, change it. But you need to extend the same grace to me. Because I thank God for my food and I eat it. And I do it with a clean conscience before the Lord. Come let us, we sang this, I think, come let us reason together. <laughs> the, 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 uh, uh, let's look at the scriptures together. Can't you see where someone could, not you, but someone else, could consider that eating meat that came from the butcher shop that got its meat from the t temple is not the same as bowing the knee to Baal? Let's extend grace to each other and leave these judgments up to the Lord. The Lord will judge me, the Lord will judge you. Colossians 2. Listen to this. I, you don't have it in front of you, but listen to this. Colossians, this is Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What does it mean? Don't submit to the dictates of the unstumbling, professing, weaker brother's conscience on these matters that are between you and the Lord. All judgment's been given into the hand of the Son. All judgment has not been given into the hand of the professing weaker brother. When Jesus' disciples were accused by the Pharisees of Sabbath-breaking with the heads of grain, did Jesus tell his disciples to stop it? At least when they're around. Did Jesus go to the disciples and say, listen, fellas, I, they look at it as harvesting. I know, no, I know it's not, but they look at it that way. So, you know, at least when they're around, you know, kind of lay off on the, no, don't do it. At least when they're around. That's not what happened. What happened? Jesus defended his disciples. When Jewish believers from, Antioch, from uh, uh, Jerusalem came up to Antioch, to see what God was doing among the Gentiles there. 
these Jewish believers, certain men from James, the Bible says, they, um, they had the idea that eating with Gentiles and eating what Gentiles ate was wrong, at least for a Jewish person, at least for a Jewish believer, is wrong. The Apostle Peter, he had he'd obviously been taught by God otherwise, dreams, and you know, he'd been taught in dramatic ways that that's not the case. He'd been eating with the Gentiles, and, I, and I, when I read it, I, think, I tend to think he's probably he's in Antioch. He's probably eating what the Gentiles ate as well. Now, I, it doesn't go that far to say that, but it just seems like he's probably maybe eating non-kosher food. And what happened when these certain men from James came, these people who didn't approve of what Peter was doing? Peter began to, he would let himself be intimidated by the expectations and prejudice of these Jewish believers, and he began to hold himself aloof from uh, the Gentile believers. Galatians 2.12 says Peter feared them. He feared their disapproval. And other Jewish believers at uh, Antioch followed Peter's lead, including Barnabas, which is a surprise. You just wouldn't expect Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to be, you just wouldn't expect him to throw the Gentile believers under the Jewish bus, you know. But even he began to follow Peter's lead. But that was a mistake. That was a mistake. And because the apostle, because it was the apostle Peter, that's part of why Paul did it, because it's the apostle Peter. And partly because it's not just a personal preferences at stake, but a, but a gospel truth about whether the Gentiles are really acceptable to God or not. The Apostle Paul found it necessary to call Peter out. To resist and correct. The let my conscience be your guide Christian should be resisted and corrected in love with gentleness with a view to maintaining peace restoring fellowship not winning an argument but resisted and corrected just the same now let me end here and I'm over I didn't mean to go over I thought I had plenty of time I'm sorry but isn't it remarkable that all of this, you know, all of this co biblical content, whole chapter Romans 14, the whole chapter 1 Corinthians 8, other passages of this size, it's all about guarding, protecting, encouraging every person's, every Christian's personal and individual relationship with God. In other words, the great concern in, this, in these passages isn't, like the, uh, the logistics of salvation, it's not about redemption and reconciliation, propitiation, justification, all those great words, great concepts. I love studying those passages. This is about something else. It's not the logistics of salvation. It's the reality of a, that Christianity is a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. It's person to person. It's something precious. It's something holy. And that's why we go to such lengths 
to protect it and treasure it and nurture it in our own lives and in the lives of each other. So I'll, I'll end with this saying, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Don't neglect it. Don't let it get lost. There's something so valuable that we have. It's personal relationship with Christ. One-on-one. Don't let it be overshadowed by the logistics of salvation. As glorious as they are. Jesus died for you not just so that you could be forgiven, but so that you can have real fellowship with Him right now, every day. Every day. Jesus died for you not just so that you can go to heaven when you die, but so you can know Him while you're living. Every day. (laughs) This is why we go to such lengths to protect that thing in each other's lives. Not to do anything to mess it up. Not to tear down, not to tear asunder what God has made, what God has done. Jesus says to each of us, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's fellowship. That's communion. That's personal relationship. Open the door. Let him in. And know the Lord every day. Every day. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, grant grace to everyone here to hear your voice, to open the door of our hearts and welcome you in. What a treasure it is to know the living God on a personal level, to be the friend of God. Uh, Grant a closer walk to every soul that knows you. Grant repentance and saving faith to any who do not know you for their eternal blessing and for your eternal glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.